0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes.
1: All right. Good afternoon, and thank you for joining us. My name is Lauren Catlin. I'm joined here by Jacob Levine and Greg Meyer, and we are Organic Matters. At Organic Matters, we create certified organic fertilizers out of poultry waste from the egg industry. And we're solving two industry problems. In the organic sector, high quality affordable fertilizers are scarce. On the other hand, industrial egg operations are generating thousands of tons of manure every day, which pose liabilities to these operations. We see the opportunity to transform these liabilities into assets while solving the scarcity issue in the organic sector. So as a fertilizer manufacturer, Our total available market is the US fertilizer market. The serviceable available market for our product is the US organic fertilizer market because these customers are required to use certified organic products. Despite the double-digit growth experienced by this market nearly every year since the 1990s, organic fertilizers fertilizers are still extremely expensive, sometimes costing over $1,000 per ton. Finally, our target market is the West Coast organic fertilizer market. So, why the West Coast? In this region, we see ideal market overlap between demand for our product and the supply of our feedstock. California, Oregon, and Washington alone make up 60% of organic fertilizer sales. And at the same time, these three states are about 10% of the U.S. egg laying market. There are 45 large-scale egg-laying operations in this region, and currently only five of them make fertilizers out of their manures. So it leaves us with 40 operations to work with. Let's talk about why one of them would want to partner with us. Manure causes problems for egg operations. It has a low commercial value, about $35 per ton, and if it can't be sold, it needs to be stored in large piles. These large piles leak nutrients out into the environment, and there are local, state, and federal regulations that limit how much manure can be stored in these piles, as well as applied on nearby cropland. Finally, as we're all aware, manure is extremely smelly, it attracts flies, and it can cause um, neighbors to complain about the odors. It's nasty stuff. So we can solve these problems by drying and pelleting. By running the manure through a high-volume biomass dryer and pellet mill, a high-value, organic fertilizer is born. The drying process removes the moisture and heats the material to a point that kills pathogenic bacteria like E. coli and Salmonella. The pellet shape integrates easily into existing fertilizer application technologies. And finally, the pellets are odorless and food safe and can be used by a wider range of farmers. We are providing a superior product to the organic farming community. Poultry manure pellets are high in nutrients and micronutrients and the organic matter in the pellets builds soil health and can improve water retention in soils. The pellets are price competitive at about $350 per ton. They're about half as expensive as other organic fertilizer options. Because we're using the most energy efficient biomass drying technology available, our poultry manure pellets are more sustainable than other pellet brands. Finally, our product is guaranteed food-safe and odorless. Our product meets the demand of a growing, proven, and underserved market. I'll now pass it over to Jake, who will tell you about how we're going to market.
2: Thank you, Lauren. So, to get to market, there are a couple things we need to do. And our process is pretty simple. First, we need to partner with large-scale egg producers. Now, this partnership is simple. We are going to enter into a long-term manure supply contract. In this contract, we will uh, buy or share in the profits of the final fertilizer um, in exchange for providing a capital uh, equipment on site. This capital equipment will process the manure and increase its value. We will not only provide the capital, but we will also operate the machinery and maintain it at no cost to the farmer, thereby relieving him of his operational cost to deal with the waste. We have already uh, are finalizing a, a partnership with a large-scale egg producer up in Northern California who has 500,000 egg layers. Um, and uh, we will be finalizing this partnership over the next few months. Now, once we finalize this partnership, we'll enter into a long-term supply contract and we'll dry and pellet the manure on site. Until when sufficient quantities are generated, we'll then pick it up with the truck and drive it to our centralized packaging facility. We will then be able to distribute it direct to consumer or the organic crop grower and indirectly through distributors or brokers. Now, through our uh, advisory network here at the Technology Management Program in the Bren School, we've already gotten access to a handful of the distributors as well as a, a handful of large-scale organic crop growers who have expressed interest in buying our product and piloting it on their farms. So, we have, our process provides the opportunity to scale, drying and pelleting industry-wide, and expand the customer base for manure. Under a business-as-usual scenario, these 40 farms that, have, uh, that aren't currently making fertilizer out of their waste Uh, can sell their manure for about $11 million in the total market. After our partnerships with every single farm on the West Coast, this market can expand tenfold to about $105 million. Our low-cost acquisition of the feedstock provides our ability to offer a a price-competitive product at the highest quality. So the moment you've all been waiting for, can we make money? The short answer is yes, a crap ton. We're seeking an initial investment of $850,000, which will provide us the necessary capital for the legal fees, for the manure supply contracts, and the offtake agreements, the equipment leasing for one full year, and the operating expenses for one year. We, like I said, we're finalizing the agreement with one farm, and he's part of a larger cooperative of three farms up in Northern California. Our plan is to install this, begin installation January 1st, 2018, which will take three months to complete. And then three additional months, so six months total, to be fully operational on that farm. After we provide proof of concept, we feel that the, uh, we are confident that the acquisition costs of subsequent farms will be reduced uh, as they, as they see how much revenue they can actually make off of their manure. We then plan to roll out three additional farms in 2019, and then subsequently two to three farms every half year until we've cornered the market and uh, locked down about 18 farms. So... When do we break even? Well, it doesn't take very much for us to break even. It takes about 2,700 tons of pellets, 2,700. That's about 1,350 acres, which takes about a year and a quarter for us to break even on each machine. So, why are we the team to make this happen? Besides the rigorous training we've received at the Bren School of Environmental Science and Management, uh, Lauren has three years of field and laboratory biology experience and has been serving as our chief impact officer, ensuring that our environmental sustainability and our mission are achieved. I, on the other hand, have uh, several years of management consulting and financial experience and have been mainly on the, the business strategy and financial side. We are joined by a board of advisors. Mike Weber is our poultry farmer, who I've mentioned several times, and has already verbally and in, uh, in writing has agreed to supply us with his manure. We're joined by Andy Konigsberg, who is former uh, managing partner of Deloitte's clean energy practice, who will be serving as, a, as our chief strategist and business advisor as we go through this process. Minos Athanasiadis is a mentor at the technology management program and runs an agricultural consultancy and helps bring new agricultural products to market. He's helped us get introductions into the large scale distributors. We also have Jason Meyer and Greg Meyer. Jason has a master's in mechanical engineering from UC Berkeley and has helped us identify the appropriate technology. Greg, on the other hand, uh, is a fifth year uh, chemistry PhD and has a lot of experience with soil science and agronomy and has helped us quantify the market size as well as uh, target the specific crops that could use our product. So our next steps are as follows. Finalize and roll out these partnership agreements. Test our final fertilizer to ensure that it's food-safe, pathogen-free, and certified organic. And then field pilot test it on, the, the, on a farm in the Central Valley that we have already have verbal and written commitments from. Finally, we need to gain exposure through various competitions and conferences up and down the West Coast and raise capital from angel investors. So, with that, I'd like to open the floor up to questions, comments, and concerns. Thank you.
3: Unfortunately, we're only going to let the judges ask the questions. (laughs) Any volunteers to kick us off?
4: Sure. We'll start. First, great job, great identification of problems, but uh, my first question is, when is poop poop? I mean, is the consistency the same from all farms? Do they have antibiotics in them? Do they... um, have steroids in them, even though they're certified organic, what constitutes poop, chicken poop?
1: (laughs) Uh, I guess I can can start answering that. Um, Greg might have to help me out a second. But the consistency of the the manure will be determined by the feed that the chickens are receiving. So that will be something that we consider with our partner farms. Usually, these large-scale operations feed the chickens very similar product. Um, And from what it seems, there's not too much difference in the nutrient load in these egg-laying hens. It's usually about 2% nitrogen across the board. As for antibiotics in the manure, um, this is a concern that we get asked... uh, Many times. Um, But we were happy to learn that earlier this year, the FDA actually banned feed additive antibiotics from all livestock feeds. So that's going to greatly reduce the amount of antibiotics in the manure. Um, There still will be therapeutic antibiotics for local infections and disease, but it will be much less than what might have been in the manures in previous years
2: it all, it's also pretty similar to the amount of antibiotics that you or i would receive on a given basis therapeutic antibiotics are only to treat infections they're not uh, applied ahead of time to prevent them there's no preventative antibiotic use anymore
1: and I, the great news is that drying the manure kills all the microorganisms in it so at least we relieve the threat of uh, antibiotic resistant microorganisms in the manure And there is some research telling us that um, the drying process can break down some of the antibiotics, but there is more research needed. It's a very emerging topic.
3: Next question.
5: Hi guys, great presentation. Really well rehearsed. And thank you for the the depth of uh, the information you presented. Um, You talk about approximately a uh, 200 $35 $35 million market just on the West Coast. And you mentioned that um, that the organic food market is growing as, as we're all familiar with. What about the organic fertilizer market? I didn't see any um, growth rates for the just the organic fertilizer market.
2: Yeah.
1: That's so in the math presentation.
2: Yeah. Like one of the early slides. So, sorry for this one second. Um, basic, so, The organic fertilizer market is growing as well, because as you add more acreage to grow more crops, you need more fertilizer. So they're almost completely positively correlated. Uh, So, I mean, if you look at strawberry production in this country, it's experienced uh, basically a 20% CAGR for Mm -hmm. 10 years, that as you add more acreage, you need more fertilizer. So it's, yeah, I don't, Greg, you wanna take this?
6: Yeah, if you wanna go to the slide in the appendix. Okay.
7: Uh, the first one. Yeah, so, so basically, as Jake said, it correlates really well with the um,
6: growth in the organic crop sales. And so here we just have a graph over the last roughly 20 years that really show the trajectory of how organic crops are being sold in the country. And you can break this down by product as well. So on the next slide, we see uh, five different crops that fit the nutrient profile of our fertilizer very well. And, and any one of these is a product that we can really target with our fertilizer, and
7: especially strawberries, which are growing very fast in, in 2012 sold almost $100 million of organic strawberries from California farms.
5: I just love talking about growth rates of produce. It's just so much fun to <laughs> see. Um, but it's, it, you know, just from my standpoint, I would love to see, because you're talking about, look, this is a an underserved market, right? And you're also talking about this is a rapidly growing market. I need to, it would be great to see the data not for, for, for the fruits and vegetables, which I, I get the correlation, it's obvious, right? But it would really... Um, help your case if you had something that related to organic fertilizer. Well, these are uh, organic fertilizers fertilizer.
2: I think that we, we didn't, I mean, we didn't specify that, but basically, these are organic crop
5: Totally, totally get that. What I'm saying is that's not fertilizer, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, right. The, and the correlation is very clear, right? But it just helps right. knowing what, what the market is because, frankly, a, a $235 million market is, it's a market, but I'd like to know if it's going to be $500 million in five years or 10 years. Okay. Um, the other question I have is, What's the barrier to entry? As I understand it, you're, you're, you're going to the chicken farmers and you'll have relationships and you're buying a better dryer, which is good. Do you have any, um, you know, do you have a unique uh, pricing agreement with the dryer manufacturer? Are you going to be the first ones putting this dryer into market? Do you have exclusivity over the next few years? Why can't somebody else come along and buy dryers and go? Uh, be nice to chicken farmers?
2: Right, so that, that's obviously a risk, right? But the, the thing that I think is pretty crucial to our business model is, is the long-term manure supply contract. So each, t- each supply contract that we n- negotiate will be for five to ten years, which will provide us a barrier to other people taking our already existing partners. So in addition, once we've developed relationships with uh, poultry farmers, uh, like we said prior... Um, Word-of-mouth marketing is extremely important in this industry. Farmers like to hear from other farmers. And if they talk to their buddy and say, hey, I've been making X, 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 extra thousands of dollars a year on a byproduct that I don't even consider as a revenue stream, I think they'll be really interested in working with someone who's proven, who has a relationship already built with a customer, and then they can reduce those, the switching costs and the acquisition costs associated with the subsequent
7: farms.
4: Any others? Yep. So let's talk about the business of the business. I mean, it seems to me this is a materials handling business, and I didn't really see anything in the write-up about capital expenditures, uh, trucks and uh, front-end loaders and conveyor belts and dryer. I saw the dryer, but I, we didn't talk about capital.
2: Yeah, so we, we require uh, the drying and pelleting machine, which is about $1.5 million if you buy it outright. However, if you lease it, cost of capital is about $20,000 a month in leasing costs for the equipment. We also factor in about $10,000 a month of leasing space for our centralized packaging facility. We factor in the cost of electricity based on the time of use rates of uh, Pacific Gas and Electric, which operate up in Sonoma County, where we're partnering with the farm. In addition, we have one laborer per farm to operate each dryer. Those are the operating costs. I mean... We might have inventory, which is not built into our calculations right now, but that's something we're working on. Um, but uh, that's basically it. We hire a third-party hauler, which is we assume the industry standard rate of $100 a ton, $100 an hour rather, and uh, we buffer in about 200 miles between each farm and our centralized packaging facility. So we're relatively conservative. I mean, Sonoma County is not 200 miles across, and all of our farms lo- are located there. So uh, to to break even, I mean, our, our, costs, our cost of production is about $124 a ton. We're selling this for 300 bucks, 350 bucks a ton to a distributor. If we go direct, we can sell it to up to $450 a ton. So there's a lot of room there. Even if, we're, even if we're underestimating some of these factors, there's a lot of room that we really do feel that we can break even relatively quickly within a year and a half, if that.
4: Okay, one other thing. Are you actually distributing the problem, meaning you're going to cause more flies, you're going to cause more water runoff by spreading this stuff around, or do you have any data or information that shows this is actually better for the environment?
1: Um, Yeah, let me get us to... I think it's forward. forward. I'll do this one, right. Oh, yeah, let me... Basically, when when manure isn't treated and it's left in these piles, um, it's extremely volatile, and it can release ammonia gas into the atmosphere, and it actually just loses nitrogen as it sits. When it's dried and made into these little pellets, it halts that process and preserves the nitrogen in the pellets so they can be stored and not have these nutrient leaching issues that you get with raw manure heaps. Um, and when you when you apply them to the cropland, as long as you're burying them in a furrow and covering them with the topsoil, you won't have that off-gassing or the, um, the water runoff that you get with raw manure because it's, it's protected by the soil around it, and the pellet itself is so compact that the nutrients are released a lot slower than sloppy raw manure. <laughs> I don't know if you're bad. For,
2: furthermore, we reduce the weight by 65%, so you can actually transport these a lot farther, so you're distributing it across a larger land mass. So the concentrations of nutrients um, are lower in, in the, the general radius.
3: That's all the time that we have. Great job, organic matter.
7: Hi, we're Wanderlease, and we simplify subleasing. Now, imagine you are a subtenant heading to New York City. You landed your dream internship, and you're looking for a place to stay. You go on Facebook, you go on Craigslist, and you spend 25 to 30 hours searching for a place. It's incredibly infuriating, and after you find this match, you realize that this person is backing out of the agreement just five days before you're heading to New York City. You only now have five days to find a new place after you've already spent so much time. It's incredibly infuriating. And clearly, her face is not very happy, as she is upset. Now imagine you're a tenant. You're looking for someone to fill your vacant space. Uh, Your name could be Ray Tang. Now you go on Craigslist and you finally find someone, except this person wrongs you. He leaves one month early, doesn't pay that final month rent, and in fact, trashes your apartment. Ray even found a picture of a live tree inside of his apartment because of a party that was thrown by him. Clearly, very upset. Now, if these faces look awfully familiar, it's because they are on the stage where I am right now. Please wave, go ahead, say hello. (laughs) It's inspiring that they can still have joy after such horrific experiences. These two realize that the subleasing marketplace is incredibly informal, time-consuming, and overall infuriating. And they realize that there need to be some sort of solution. So Wanderlease provides a centralized marketplace for tenants to efficiently and securely match their property with subtenants. After conducting 130 customer interviews spanning over four months, we discovered there are three primary pain points within the subleasing market. First being, the excessive time. The time that it takes to scroll through various platforms, post about your listing, just to find out that your match might not even be who they claim to be. In fact, we've heard stories of scamming and fraud, which brings up to our next point. Countless stories of individuals having their security deposits stolen from them and thousands of dollars being lost. Finally, there's a lack of legal obligation in place. There's nothing holding either party to ensure that they're holding up their side of the bargain, which was clearly exemplified in both the story of Ray and Sheikah. Luckily, Wanderlease has devised a solution that is comprehensive and targets each individual pain point. First off, with our incredible matching platform. Think of it like a dating site, an eHarmony-style system in which you input your preferences and what you're looking for. We then create a curated list of the individuals that you should be talking to and screen out all the weirdos or potential scammers. And speaking of scammers, we found a way to solve that problem too. Through a screening process. What we do is conduct basic identification checks as well as a confirmation of residency to ensure the person that you're talking to is indeed who they claim to be. Finally, we do automated contracts as well as e-payment. We provide you a contract template so that the legal obligation is insured on both sides of the party. And the e-payment centralizes the process to ensure that subleasing is all on one platform, and you're not scrambling around spending time and wasting money. So through Wanderlease, our average customer can save over 12 hours and find a safe and secure match, ensuring that they have both the time and the money that they were looking for. What we're very excited to show is the Wanderlease consumer experience, an easy and fun intuitive way to get on the platform and find your match. Let's say in this example, you are looking for a place to stay. You input the basic information, what your start and end date is, location, price range, and then afterwards, you get to the fun part, inputting your preferences in a fun and easy fashion. You're always welcome to go back and change it, but after you put in all your preferences, you get your match results. This list is based on the location that you put Where it be where you're working or the college that you'll be attending. You click on the first person to discuss with and start having a nice little conversation. Afterwards, you decide, hey, I like what I'm hearing. I want to schedule a viewing. You can do that on the site as well. Once you schedule a viewing, meet with a person, check out the home, you can get to our automated contract. Based on the conditions that are already inputted on the site, we have that contract fully created for you. You're more than welcome to customize it, but we feel this really saves our customers a lot of time and annoyance. The next thing is being able to pay directly on the site itself. Review what you've already been discussing, and voila, the entire subleasing process is centralized on one platform. Regarding our competition, we are incredibly confident that Wanderlease is the most comprehensive solution and the marketplace for subleasing. Facebook and Craigslist may have a massive user base, but they have no filtration, matching, or contracts. In fact, a lot of their shortcomings is why the problems arose in the first place. Next up, you have Airbnb. They focus on a different market entirely, shorter term vacation rentals. They're also more expensive, have been dealing with legal ramifications greatly, and don't have the contracts or matching that we can provide. There have been a few entries to the market, such as Leaseful and Flip.Lease. However, they don't have the matching algorithm that we have devised, making it fun and saving time, and they also include the landlord and tenant relationship. Something that we've discovered through numerous customer interviews is something that our new clients clearly do not want. Therefore, Wanderlease is the most comprehensive and has the edge of the market relative to any other subleasing marketplace platform. I'll now hand it off to Shika to explain a little bit about the market opportunity as well as the finances behind
8: Wanderlease. So, as Salik so emotionally told my story about finding housing in New York City, it was definitely not easy. But it was a blessing in disguise, because I found an incredible market opportunity with millions of subleasers on Facebook groups, Craigslist ads, trying to sublease. And we found that our market opportunity in the subleasing market is $240 million. Not only is this a grand opportunity, but it is also a growing market. The rental vacancy rate in New York City alone is only 3.3%, and this has been on the decline since 1985. Additionally, an integral part of our target market is millennials, and just since 2008, there has been a 9% increase in millennials who are renting. What these numbers mean is that demand for housing is on the rise, that means subleasing is on the rise. And we also feel confident that we have targeted the right target market, millennials, and we can serve them with our platform. So, how do we make money? We charge the subtenant five percent of their first month's rent and two percent of their subsequent months. All in my pocket. Just kidding. But the way that we determine that sub-tenants are the ones who are willing to pay is through a lot of market research and the fact that they have the time sensitivity. When they're moving into a new city for their new job, internship, or just to move, they have way more of an incentive to pay because of that time sensitivity. So if we look at our numbers, we plan to be at a 0.1% market penetration rate by the first year and 1.1% by the third year. We use a progressive model in which we only enter New York City, which is the most ripe market for subleasing by far really brand ourselves, dominate that market, and um, increasingly add more cities as the years pass. By year three, we're at $4.6 million in market uh, revenue. So in order for us to get to market, we need $462,000. We've talked to multiple lawyers in this space and realized that we do have a legally feasible model if we really lock down that legal infrastructure from the beginning. That's why we invest $105,000 in legal consultation for the first year. Another integral part to getting marketplaces like ours off the ground is that advertisement and getting the initial traction from the beginning. That's why we invest heavily in Facebook advertising, search engine optimization, and when we aggregate those costs with our cost of goods and our expenses, we get that $462,000. And lastly, why us? We're a multidisciplinary team with a diverse set of backgrounds in business, finance, and engineering. Not only have we lived through this problem, but we've market-validated it to no end, and we feel passionately and confidently that we can provide a solution to this underserved, unsaturated, and intriguing market. Thank you.
9: Awesome presentation, Um, great design. Um, and, uh, and you know, great team there as well you, can, you guys can get to market, I love that um, I think on the competitive side um, you know you gave off the features and you know, I know that Airbnb hasn't developed this but they got a lot of money, a lot of engineers, smart people there so assuming they do this how do you guys think about potential moves in the future to keep off Airbnb's differentiate yourself how do you think about that strategy long term
7: Great question. Does that is it work? Okay. Uh, so, regarding Airbnb, we realize that this isn't necessarily on their radar as a company. And they also bring on a potential risk uh, when they look into it. Further they're, they're a lot more expensive than what we provide. Uh, and long term, we think our go-to-market strategy is going to give us an edge there. We plan on targeting groups like temporary workforces. Uh, such as traveling nurses, as well as students going abroad, international students, things of that nature to kind of give us a foothold early on. Uh, We've also realized that with a lot of these marketplace sites, it's really about early penetration and if you can establish that level of trust with your customers, uh, which is why we're spending a lot of our early money towards legal consultation, ensuring that the contracts that we provide per city uh, are accurate and can be held up in court. Uh, We also want to look into different aspects within leasing in general, perhaps incorporating our matching aspects uh, with larger leasing companies. And hopefully long term, we want to leverage the fact that the subleasing market is inevitable based on our research. And we can actually approach landlords with this and have them be involved in the process as well long term. Uh, So we feel that we have some very key differentiating points, uh, a unique strategy in entering the market and filling up our site, uh, and confident that Airbnbs not necessarily as focused on this market and we're really t- targeting the subleasing pain points.
10: Thanks, guys. Great presentation. Um, you know, I wonder about the legal side of this. Um, I think I asked you guys this last time I saw you, so I'll ask in a bigger group, but Do you think that $105,000 is enough? And, you know, how did you investigate this? Where did you come up with that dollar? And is it going to be a per-market issue? Or um, how do you plan to tackle that?
8: Hi. Thank you for the question. So the way that we calculated that $105,000 is an aggregate of 300 hours of legal consultation with um, high-specialty legal lawyers who charge, on average, about... $350 an hour so um, we can definitely invest more into that but um, after talking to a couple of legal specialists in this area we've realized that this is kind of a good number definitely looking into perhaps investing more into that and the way that we decide to enter the market is one only one city in the first year and that would only apply to the legal side of not only our contracts, our e-payments, our terms and agreement, but also the legal um, ordinances of New York City alone.
10: Did you pick New York for that reason, or was it?
8: We, we picked New York because it's by far the most ripe market for subleasing. The turnover there is crazy, uh, of like how many people are subleasing entering these groups. Um, the rent price is high, and um, yeah, so New York City is just the biggest market for subleasing. Thanks.
4: Thank you. Hi, guys. Um, Actually, I love the concept. I I would have used it when I was your age. Um, Wish it was around. However, all of these models or asset utilization are subject to two particular problems. One is taxation. It looks like a hotel to me. And two, poking on that legal thing, most contracts, I know people are subleasing, but most contracts don't allow it. So how are you going to address Taxation as a hotel, and and back to the legal question.
11: So, with the hoteling question, uh, for the first part, we are only subleasing. The subleasing period is from one month to eleven months. So that is a consider like that's a con- totally separate realm from hoteling. So that's not an issue that we were asked when brought up with property management lawyers in San Francisco, Los Angeles, and New York. Um, So that's not something that we were especially having to worry about. For the second question about the legality of the contract and with lawyers, we've noticed that subleasing is on the rise no matter if the landlord allows it or not. A lot of what happens with our customer interviews is that we find that the tenant who has his name on the lease will sublease no matter what. They're losing out on a considerable portion of their um, rent if they don't fill the spot and that's what's happening in the market without the landlord knowing or not. Um, as we move forward from year one to year two to year three, we're hoping that landlords realize that this is a ph- phenomenon. This is occurring in the market and will maybe be more agreeable uh, with uh, lease.
3: Got a time for a couple more.
5: Um, on your features slide, you talked about a feature called liability disassociation. Um, on It was on your competition slide, actually. What is liability disassociation, and and why do I want that?
8: So the liability disassociation just tells us about the contracts. The contract that we provide is more of a social agreement between the subtenant and the tenant. That leaves that contract completely independent from the master lease in which the tenant is liable to the landlord. That way, we dissociate ourselves from the liability in there. Um, We make it clear to them that if they don't want to involve their landlord in, let's say, a master lease that doesn't allow subleasing, they are taking on their respective liabilities. And this is happening anyway, so we're just making it more secure. But within our terms and agreements and in our structure in general, we dissociate ourselves with the liability of, if you don't want to include your landlord, we're not going to be responsible for that.
7: And as a competitive edge, we've seen that some of the early entries, um, some of the early companies that are still somewhat startup phase um, are requiring the landlord's involvement, which has hurt the amount of listings that they've been able to provide. Uh, So we feel that this is going to help bring in more consumers to us and be a competitive edge relative to Flip.Lease and Leaseful.
3: Got time for another? One more?
9: Um. You guys kind of have a marketplace chicken and egg problem. You need a lot of people looking for leases on your site, and you need a lot of people posting up leases. How are you gonna approach solving that?
7: Uh, Kind of going back to some of the strategies strategies we had with filling up the site in the first place, which is by targeting groups in bulk early on, um, such as international students, students going abroad, traveling nurses, uh, people that are expected to be having this um, reoccurring subleasing need. And by forming partnerships with different groups that are uh, discussing this, in fact, we've had discussed at UCSB with certain um, individuals about this. Uh, it's very encouraging that you know, this is something that a lot of their uh, students or members are going through, and they need this type of product. So we feel that filling up the site initially in bulk would be incredibly helpful. And then also having the tenant, this entire service being free on their side will help fill up the listings more, and we feel the popularity will come from uh, the subtenants if there's enough listings in place in the first place. Uh, If subtenants arrive to the site and there's not enough listers, uh, then that's a huge detriment to our popularity, but because we're offering a free service to them and targeting bulk groups, we feel we'll have the chicken or the egg problem solved.
8: If also I can add, similar to an Airbnb model, how they got their initial traction, they had people list stuff on their site and post that link on Craigslist and Facebook. And since our entire market is pretty much happening on Facebook and Craigslist right now, we want to implement the same plan and having them link it onto Facebook, Craigslist, which goes back to our site. And we can target huge groups. Like these groups have hundreds and thousands of people within each one. And if they see Wanderlease.com, 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 I think that's um, a lot of advertisement within each group, too.
3: Great job, Wanderlease.
0: Hello, everyone. My name is Michael. I'm a third-year PhD student in chemistry here at UCSB, and this is Vince. And today, we'd like to tell you about our company, Collateral Therapeutics, where we're taking the next step in foot ulcer therapy. So let me ask all of you a question. Raise your hand if you've ever had a blister like this one. I can see quite a few of you, and honestly, I'm not surprised. Stub your toe or wear an uncomfortable pair of shoes, and you end up with something like this. But, and for most of us, after a couple days, they're gone. They heal, and we don't worry about them. However, for diabetics, this isn't the case. You see, diabetics have reduced healing in their foot. So something like that turns into something like this. This is a diabetic foot ulcer, and honestly, this is a mild one. When you get one of these, doctors can try to treat them. However, Many times these treatments don't work, and instead of getting better, they get worse. Now, what I just flashed on the screen is a very severe diabetic foot ulcer. And in this case, really the only option is amputation. And in fact, this is quite common. About 12 people will lose their foot to this condition in the U.S. every hour. And when you lose your foot, you don't just lose your foot. You lose your quality of life as well. This is 12 mothers who can no longer go to their son's baseball game. 12 fathers who can no longer walk their daughter down the aisle and with diabetes increasing at a four-fold rate every 40 years, this is not going to get any better anytime soon. All of this really comes down to the vasculature in your foot. In a healthy foot, we have plenty of veins and capillaries that allow us to have adequate healing. However, in diabetics, the smallest vessels, known as capillaries, can become blocked. When this happens, your healing function is reduced. So if you get an injury, you're not able to heal it correctly, and you get one of these ulcers. Now doctors will try to treat this with things like negative pressure wound therapy as well as as, um, skin grafting. However, these don't really work all the time. For one thing, they don't actually treat the underlying condition. And because of that, you can get a recurrence. And every time you have to get a treatment for this, it can result in amputation. Now we believe it's absolutely unacceptable that anyone should lose their foot to something as simple as a blister. But there is hope. Doctors have discovered that there are molecules out there that are able to grow new blood vessels in the body. The problem with these is that they have nasty side effects, which has restricted their clinical use. However, at Collatera, we believe we've come up with a solution. We want to take these molecules and lock them up as part of a larger complex. By doing this, we inactivate them, and they remain that way. That is, until they're struck with light. When this happens, the active molecule pops off and acts on the tissues nearest it. This allows us to grow the blood vessels we want, where we want them, without the side effects currently associated with these therapies. So let's go back to that diabetic foot. In this case, the doctor prescribes our medicine. This patient goes home and applies a cream to the foot. Then they simply wear a light-activated bandage device for around a month, which is how long evidence suggests that it takes to actually grow new blood vessels in this foot. Once you do that, the body is able to heal on its own, and these wounds heal. Now, I'm going to hand it off to Vince to talk to you about the
12: marketing of this. To illustrate how big this problem really is, of the nearly $200 billion that are spent on diabetic care each year in the U.S., $11 billion are spent specifically on treating diabetic foot ulcers. We are going to target the $2.7 billion of this that accounts for early stage foot ulcers because we have identified that this is the population with the largest unmet need from current solutions in the market and it's also going to offer us the largest competitive advantage. We validated our product by speaking to over a hundred patients, physicians, industry specialists, and legal experts. And what we found is that patients with diabetic foot ulcers are plagued by long hospitalization stays, often spending months away from their family and their friends. This is why nearly every patient that we spoke to told us that if they could reinvent a solution for themselves, they would allow for the treatment of themselves away from the hospital because of this we designed our device with patients in mind with Collatera, a patient can now apply our easy to use device leave the hospital and watch their wounds heal from home another distinct advantage of our product is that preliminary studies in mice indicate that the active component of our molecule can heal wounds up to four times faster than the current gold standard treatment known as negative pressure wound therapy. Finally, unlike current solutions on the market, our product can actually grow new blood vessels. And because this treats the underlying problem of this disease, we believe that this will prevent foot ulcer recurrence. Since nearly 60% of all patients that get a diabetic foot ulcer are likely to get another one, this will be a key step in preventing amputation. Looking forward, our team will be completing our preclinical studies and solidifying our intellectual property as a novel composition of matter at the Harvard Life Lab Incubator in Boston, where we'll be moving this summer. Because of the nature of the problem that we are solving for, there are significant opportunities for non dilutive funding to fund these initial studies, as well as our initial studies in humans at at a large wound center, such as the Massachusetts General Hospital or Tufts Medical Center. We will then leverage these studies to seek venture capital funding or partnerships with big pharmaceutical companies that have an interest in wound care to fund the final rounds of clinical trials and go to the market. To accomplish this, we have carefully crafted a team with the right balance of technical expertise and business acumen. Michael Evans is a PhD student in chemical engineering that specializes in light activated drug delivery. Kevin Peng is also a PhD student that specializes in diabetic therapies. Vinu Krishnan is a postdoctoral researcher that specializes in drug delivery through the skin. Paul Ostrich is an economics major with experience in business development and venture capital. And I'm a master of technology management student with a background in biochemistry that can bridge both the science and the business of this company. Along with this, we have compiled a group of expert advisors in the drug that we are using, the patients that we are treating and the clinical trial process that we will have to go through that we believe will be instrumental to the success of our company. Finally, what I want to leave you with is that although we have identified diabetic foot ulcers as the initial market because it will allow us the fastest path to entry, we we have not simply created a foot ulcer technology. What we have is a product that has the capability of growing new blood vessels in a number of different diseases, that also offers significant financial opportunities for products in the future. I want you to join us as we redefine what healthcare means for the millions of patients with these diseases. We are Collateral Therapeutics, and we are the next step in foot ulcer therapy.
3: Great job, you guys. Julie, you want to start us off?
10: Sure. Good job, you guys. Great presentation. Um, thank you very much. Uh, my question would be: Where are you with the technology? You know, in terms of your validation, like how far along are you, and you know, when you, where you get started this summer, and you know, what have you been able to verify in terms of it working or not?
0: So, just one click. Sorry. Uh, currently, we have designed the drug, and we are still need to undergo. The uh, drug discovery and as well as the animal testing, but we have a lot of uh, faith that this will work simply because there are there's a lot of um, backing out there in previous literature and things like that.
5: Okay. So, uh, just to be clear on your photo of the untreated versus treated, was that in a uh, in a lab dish or was that on mouse tissue or where was that taking place?
0: So that. Image is, uh, yeah, that's actually mouse tissues. That's a live image of a mouse from a previous publication done at Albert Einstein University. Um, and it's basically showing, you yeah, after day nine, that's an untreated wound. And then our active complex is being used there. And it shows and, kind of the
5: And that's your actual com- compound that was.
0: So that is the, actu- that is the active molecule. What okay. We're con- what we are conceptualizing is actually taking this and then locking that up to make it inactive. Because what they're doing is they're not really showing the side effects that can come with this, which is problematic for humans. So if we actually have the control over whether or not this molecule is released, we're able to solve a lot of the problems that still exist for this technology.
5: So you had a TAM slide uh, that showed some other areas that you could go to treatment on. Um, yeah, that one. No, go forward. to The, the last slide thing. with all the bubbles? Yeah, Steve? the one yeah. with all the bubbles. The
3: one at the end. <laughs>
5: that one um so those all seem to be you know large um large markets as well um why the the diabetes foot ulcer in terms of the approval process i and i'm a novice when it comes to fda approval um so just uh, would love to know if that is going to be your your path of least resistance in
13: in any way um, that's a great question, and that's actually why we chose diabetic foot ulcers opposed to these other areas, because diabetic foot ulcers, they don't really have any good alternatives, so that makes it easier to go through the FDA process, you know, um, for PVDs up there, erectile dysfunction, there's alternatives, here for PVD, they can take years, which means it's a much longer trial, so... Um, because, as an earlier slide demonstrated, we're expecting four times uh, faster wound healing. That's also a very significant delta value, it means we have to have less patients enrolled in clinical trials to prove that our data is statistically significant. And that is one of the biggest costs of trials is recruiting patients. Furthermore, um, diabetic uh, foot ulcer patients, this is such an intense disease that many of these people are forced to join support groups, um, you know, like on Facebook, and that creates a large network where they're all actively looking for trials to enroll in, and so they're much more likely to refer someone from their group. So um, all those reasons kind of make it that this is the quickest way to FDA approval of any of the other markets that we are considering. Furthermore, diabetes has a lot of grant funding out there specifically for it. You know, it's high on a lot of people's radar, so it's easier to get free money from grants as opposed to some of the other areas. More
5: So as an investor, a a um, decade-plus... strategy to realize the returns on the on the investment um, is is daunting to say the least as someone who 's been in my current company for fifteen years it's it 's uh, torture in reality um, it 's good when you win though um, is there any other potential uh, exit for investors at any other stage in the in the life cycle that uh, would involve perhaps um, the licensing of your uh, IP or something that comes before uh, the uh, final approval by the FDA that would be a reasonable or a more reasonable um, return period uh, for the, the investors who would be looking at this.
14: So typically around um, phase two is when we'd be looking for um, corporate partnerships. Um, or acquisition from pharmaceutical companies such as uh, Johnson & Johnson who are particularly interested in this area. Um, In terms of um, reducing sort of that uh, high investment risk, um, we believe that our ability to shorten the uh, clinical trial length will play a huge role in that. Um, If you look at the top three costs um, involved in clinical trials, um, that is like site retention, uh, site recruitment, patient recruitment, all those things. Um, because we have clear clinical endpoints, we're looking at a chronic wound healing model. We think we can really reduce the time of clinical trials. And that functions into um, reducing the overall cost as well.
5: And your estimate on, on that time reduction?
14: What do you think is a, is a reasonable time for phase two completion? So... If you're just comparing to the average uh, clinical trial where you're looking at um, even uh, just, just diabetes itself, the disease um, or cancer, you're looking at like a couple years to follow up. Um, we're looking at a wound model where um, we want to uh, do better than the leading competitor uh, where they can take up to three months, uh, that is the wound back to heal a wound. We want to reduce that time um, at less, uh, at a lower cost, and so um, we're into, it's anticipating about maybe a forty percent uh, reduction in the over, overall length of the clinical trial process.
4: Yeah, I, I'm still not clear about the intellectual property situation. Do you have technologies and patents currently that your uh, molecule patents anything anything right now?
12: Yeah, so the current molecule that we've created is a novel composition of matter. We've consulted with a number of patent experts on this, and um, the only thing that we, are, we, we only haven't done that because we only haven't solidified our IP because part of our strategy is to leverage STTR grants. And so when we move um, to Harvard in the summer then, uh, and complete a little bit of our preclinical testing using this molecule, then we will solidify our IP using that molecule.
3: Great job, Collatera. We need to move on.
15: Good afternoon. My name is Elijah. I'd like to begin with a question. Please raise your hand if you answer yes to any of the following. Have you ever known anybody who suffered from cancer? Please keep them up. What about Parkinson's? Alzheimer's? Please keep your hands up. Epilepsy? PTSD? Multiple sclerosis? Take a look around the room. I want you to remember what you see. We are Delta Leaf Laboratories, and we are growing health, using a new patent-pending technology to create THC-free strains of cannabis so that people can get the health benefits without the high. There's a common misconception that the therapeutic benefits of cannabis are intimately associated with psychological impairment, and that's simply not true. I'm a geneticist here at UCSB, and I've been working on breaking the cannabis genetic code. The therapeutic benefits of this plant are conferred by an entire family of of compounds, known as the cannabinoids. There's over 100 members in this family, and most of them confer no, no psychoactive effects. We've developed a method to deactivate the primary molecule, which causes psychological impairment, called THC, while keeping the full remaining complement of cannabinoids present in the plant available for therapeutic use. There's growing support for the use of cannabis in therapeutic treatments. The National Academies of Science has released over a 100-page report in just this past January, documenting conclusive evidence for the treatment of a wide variety of diseases using cannabis. The American Cancer Society has shown interest in using cannabis because cannabis extracts have shown the ability to stop the growth of cancer cells in a dish. Additional research is desperately needed in this area. Our own market research of over 200 respondents has shown that 56% of current cannabis users, all cannabis users, are interested in purchasing and using cannabis products that still offer the medical benefits, but do not make them impaired. Additionally, one third of non-cannabis users are interested in using cannabis products for medical purposes if those products do not make them impaired. Through precise genetic engineering, we can offer consistency through guaranteeing our cannabis products will be THC-free. There is no other producer on the market that can can guarantee this. We also offer variety, because particular cannabis strains are best suited for treating particular symptoms. So we can expand the the currently limited number of low THC strains that are on the market so that patients can access the strains that they know are most effective for them while avoiding the impairing effects of THC. THC THC-free cannabis truly is help without the high. You can use our products and drive a car and go to work and not be impaired. This is what a therapy and a medicine is supposed to be. We've made great progress moving our research forward. We've already identified genetic markers for eight different strains of cannabis. We've successfully moved into experiments where we can deactivate the THC gene using purified DNA in a test tube. I'm showing results from one of those experiments here. You can see the purified uh, THC gene shows up as a darker band towards the top of the image. And the way we deactivate this gene is literally by going inside and cutting up the gene into little pieces. And so you can see smaller pieces of the THC gene successfully digested here. We're moving forward into experiments in living plants now. And these experiments are moving quickly. We've already accomplished three out of the five steps that are required to produce THC-free cannabis. And we expect the proof of concept to be complete within the next three months. Our technology gives us a significant advantage over the competitors. We can create new strains in a matter of months compared to traditional growers which take years. Furthermore, when we create these strains, we can be flexible, concise, uh, precise, and consistent in the way we target specific cannabinoids in the plant. Traditional growers are literally shooting in the dark with each generation. Furthermore, when we remove THC, we target the source. We deactivate the very gene itself that produces this molecule. Traditional growers have no control over this process. Furthermore, there are chemical extractors that try to Uh, create extracts of cannabis that are low in THC. However, they're often relying on less effective industrial hemp strains, which contain lower levels of cannabinoids in in total. Furthermore, their chemical extraction methods can leave behind toxic solvents. That's clearly undesirable in in a medicine. In order to get our product to market, we intend to license our technology to cultivators. We'll produce seeds, give them to cultivators, and collect royalties on the revenues they generate. However, as a byproduct of our research activity, we'll be generating highly valuable cannabis, which can be sold wholesale to infused product manufacturers. However, our research activities will likely not meet the demand of all the manufacturers on the market, and so we'll develop strategic partnerships with our cultivators to help meet that demand. We're also undergoing branding efforts at retail dispensary stores in order to increase consumer awareness and support in our product and bring additional cultivators into licensing our our technology. The cannabis industry is no longer in the shadows. We're plugging into a thriving ecosystem of resources, including cannabis-specific media outlets targeted at cannabis businesses and consumers. There are professional associations, which host trade shows and conferences that we can use to grow our network. There are also distributors akin to the alcohol industry to connect producers like us with retailers. The cannabis industry has been dubbed a so-called green rush. With the national market growing rapidly at a compound annual growth rate, of 31%. Total revenue in sales is expected to top $20 billion by 2021 for the entire US market. And California consumes roughly a third of that, projected to be worth $7.6 billion in sales in 2020. Our next steps after developing our proof of concept are to establish a research and cultivation facility here in Southern California. So our proof of concept will be complete in the next three months by September. From there, we'll begin to work on a a constructing our facility, which we plan to have complete by January. Currently, state licenses for commercial cannabis activity are not available in California until January 2018, which is perfect timing for us. Once our facility is complete, we'll immediately begin licensing that facility. And we expect that process to be complete by March of next year, at which point we can begin producing cannabis that will be used for direct sale. This entire process, including constructing the facility and funding our first year's operations, requires roughly a $750,000 investment. However, we expect to be cash flow positive and profitable in our first year. This is mostly due to revenues generated from the direct sales. However, our long-term growth model is focused on increasing our contract uh, revenue through royalties. And so we'll focus heavily on that going forward, and we expect that our revenue from our contracts will ex- surpass our revenue from our direct sales at, by year five at the latest. We're also projecting roughly $6.8 million in total profit in year five by capturing 5.6% of only the California market. In the future, we plan to optimize specific strains of cannabis for specific treatments. Like I mentioned earlier, some patients prefer one strain for treating their particular symptoms over another. We think this can address a very broad issue in the United States. There is currently over $300 billion spent on prescription pharmaceuticals every year in the United States. Over 6 million people are addicted to prescription painkillers in the United States. Furthermore, a recent Harvard study demonstrated a 42% reduction in opioid addiction in states that have recently legalized medical cannabis. We think that Delta Leaf can help address this issue, particularly with THC-free cannabis. Our team is particularly suited to address the challenges ahead of us. I'm a PhD candidate here at UCSB studying molecular biology, and I'm heading our research efforts Felipe Infante is head of our uh, marketing efforts. He's getting his bachelor's in global studies and was a two-term human resources commissioner for the city of Pasadena. Edgar Rodriguez is leading our operations op- effort, bachelor's in political science, and founder and president of the UCSB Avid Alumni Association. So California exists in a unique regulatory climate. The California state legislature is very friendly to cannabis and allows industri- uh, businesses like us to start up and develop technologies like this in California. However were insulated from large pharmaceutical and agricultural companies because of federal prohibition. So right now is the only time and place in history where this technology could be developed by a small organization like us. And we want to capitalize on that. So we hope you'll support us and join the health revolution and help us grow health. We are Delta Leaf Laboratories. Thank Thank you.
3: Great job. Who'd like to begin a, our uh, Q&A?
5: Um, great presentation, guys. And it, it, uh, I'm unclear. Can the, can the CRISPR treatment uh, that you're doing, can you uh, get a patent uh, on the, the end product, in, in other words? And, and um, how difficult is it to secure that, that IP? Um, And then, the other question I had, I I believe that federal regulations cover the production and consumption of cannabis and really give no different treatment whatsoever to THC-free cannabis, correct?
15: Yeah, so let me address your first question uh, about patenting, CRISPR patenting. So the technology I'm using to develop this is called CRISPR. It's only been uh, published in research studies in the past few years. And so there's still an ongoing patent debate between the two primary academic institutions which publish competing patents on this technology. Those are MIT and Berkeley. And so there's already a, um, a mushroom, a white button mushroom, that's being sold on the market that was produced using CRISPR technology. And uh, we're using that exact same method to produce our cannabis. And so we're confident that we'll be able to obtain the licenses and pass the regulatory hurdles to get our
5: product to market because there's already an existing case. Yeah, the, the second question was that the, the federal laws aren't written uh, with the anticipation that there would ever be such a thing as THC-free marijuana, right? So you're going to be subject to all of the stigmas and the regulations and the, the federal uh, doubt on, on, on the rule of law and the enforceability, regardless of the fact that you have none of the, the THC in, in your product, correct? That is correct. Um, so, yes, unfortunately, there is an
15: unfavorable federal regulatory climate towards cannabis right now. Um, that's why we're starting in California, because California has recently um, brought a, the U.S. Attorney General, former U.S. Attorney General, Javier Becerra, to California to help um, defend California's uh, ethical standpoints on its particular um, you know, issues that it's moving forward, such as cannabis.
5: And then the final question I have: um, it, What, it, as far as drug testing goes, does drug testing uh, test only for THC, and would this be um, provide the benefit of, of clear drug testing? Uh,
15: Fantastic question. Yes. Um, So drug testing does specifically look for THC and metabolites of THC in your blood. Um, So one perfect example, if you get pulled over in Washington, a state that has currently legalized uh, medical and recreational use of cannabis, and they suspect you're impaired because of cannabis use, they'll take you down to the station and test for THC metabolites in your blood. However, if you use our product, those metabolites won't be present, indicating you are not impaired.
4: I just want to dig a little bit deeper on the drug discovery part of this. Um, what's the difference between a human therapeutic and what you're doing? Why do they have to go through phase one, two, and three clinical trials and vivarium animal tests when you're advertising that it's a therapeutic and it's a medicine uh, and specific applications of it? Do you think you're going to get challenged? Um.
15: Yeah, so that, that is also interesting, the, uh, the federal regulatory aspects for drug development regarding uh, cannabis. Is cannabis a therapeutic that needs to undergo clinical trials? And so far, we have not seen uh, any evidence that they view it as such. It, it seems to us uh, to us be more of a natural product, right? This is good for your health, but these statements are not evaluated by the FDA. Um, and we believe that's because of the federal prohibition. We believe that if the federal prohibition is lifted, or when it is lifted, um, that we, cannabis may see some of these clinical trials become required if you're going to claim therapeutic benefits. Um, But again, we've seen a lot of examples from the natural product industry in terms of um, how to market and avoid dealing with those regulatory issues for a product that may or may not need to go through clinical trials.
10: Hi, guys. Great presentation. Hot market. Um, (laughs) A lot of people are looking at this. Uh, Your market slide, and you're speaking about the cannabis market, didn't specifically address the CBD market. Um, so I'm just kind of curious to know how big that is. I, I know there are a lot of players in it. What does the competitive landscape look like? And, I mean, how large a problem is it that there is potentially THC and toxins in there? Um, yeah. So, I'll...
15: Um, so yeah, there is currently a, um, a subsector of the medical cannabis market that is focused specifically on growing these low THC strains. These are called high CBD strains. They're typically crossbred uh, from industrial hemp to med- uh, medicinal cannabis. And there's data of uh, surveys of growers across the nation. And roughly 20% of the current cannabis crop that's grown in the United States is composed of these high CBD strains. And so there's already strong traction for these types of strains in the market. It's simply that they still, those strains still have THC in them. They can still make you impaired. We guarantee that our product will not have THC, and we can also offer a wider variety of products.
9: In your kind of initial financial projections, you have a lot of revenue coming from direct to consumer sales. Um, how many actual consumers are looking for cannabis-free marijuana, and what's that actual market like? And how are you going to actually sell to them? Um, so our uh, our direct sales revenue is based on
15: uh, wholesale, business-to-business sale, and so we won't be selling direct to consumer as a, a retail dispensary. Um, we'll primarily be focusing on the direct sales to these infused product manufacturers because we'll be selling the byproducts of our research efforts, which are not necessarily the highest grade. Uh, they can't really compete on the store shelves, essentially. So we can sell it wholesale to people who will make extracts from it, such as uh, ointments and things, um, creams and topicals.
9: So what, what's the market for those creams and, and topicals and, and how much money is there?
15: Um, so like I, as I mentioned earlier, the best data we really have on that is surveys of growers and the percentage of types of crops they grow, and so t- roughly 20% of the total cannabis produced is these high CBD strains, which are often used for um, product manufacturing. And so we, we are, we're shooting after that 20% initially, but we believe that based on our market research that 56% of all cannabis users are interested in purchasing and using cannabis products that do not make them impaired, that um, we will have access to a greater percentage of that market.
4: Do you need to do this with CRISPR? I mean, uh, hybridization is what got the strong pot going. Um, isn't there very weak strains, like some of the hemp strains for, for ropes and so forth, that you could try? Uh,
15: yes. So the industrial hemp strains are generally low in THC as well, but they're low in total cannabinoid content. So they generally have much less, a much reduced therapeutic efficacy. And so what we can do is we can keep those high levels of other cannabinoids that are non-impairing while simply removing the THC from medical strains. And we don't have to deal with any hemp strains and diluting the effect.
3: We're out of time. Great job, Delta Leaf.
1: Hi, everyone.
6: My name is Rodriguez. I'm here representing FanaField, and we are excited to bring you augmented reality for your daily life. Today, we are surrounded by displays. Displays that do not work?
3: (laughs) Aha!
6: We are surrounded by displays from the time we wake up until the time we go to bed. Checking our smartwatch for the next meeting notice, answering email on our smartphone, there are just too many displays, but they're a portal into the digital world. But there's a better, more connected, more immersive future in augmented reality. Augmented reality is digital imagery overlaid upon the real world. And we've seen amazing examples of this, with personal assistants that help you in your daily life, improving your efficiency and helping you save the world. Or allowing you to explore new worlds in ways you never thought possible. Or experience digital holograms overlaid upon the real world for social entertainment and our interactions with the world. The possibilities of augmented reality are limitless, but today, this is the reality of augmented reality. We talked with over 60 end users, prosumers, developers, and industry experts, and they identified five key pain points. First, the field of view is too narrow for a truly immersive experience. Second, the low resolution leads to low quality and pixelated graphics. Third, these unsightly devices are up to 20 times more than your everyday glasses, preventing you from wearing them for long periods of time. Fourth is the, the fact they're too dim. You can't use them outside and enjoy these awesome new devices. Fifth is the eye strain caused by your eyes constantly adapting between the fixed 2D plane and the real world behind it. Now this technology gap isn't, is much, isn't much unlike what we've seen before with Motorola phone from the 80s. It took a technology push forward before we were able to see mass adoption of a cell phone. It took the sleek, user-centered iPhone to get us there. Now, what's going to be that technology that makes augmented reality ubiquitous? What's going to make it as easy as putting on your favorite pair of glasses? What's going to make it so that way augmented reality is unanimous with everything we see around us? Now, the solution to that is Fantafield's Field's innovative solution to these problems. Our founder, Shu Jun-ji, with five years of semiconductor device experience, is going to brief you on how the technology works.
16: So we solve this problem in a fundamentally different way. On my hand is a gallium nitride on transparent sapphire wafer. So this is the same material in the LED light bulb. So it can be as bright as the sun. On this wafer, we make micro LEDs, and then we use UV lithography in UCSB nanofab to make very high resolution pixels. And by by integrating, we put a layer of micro lens to project those light in from the micro lens. Micro LEDs directly into your eyes. And by a pattern, micro lens design, we can have the field of view as large as, which is only limited by the size of the display. And the, all this device will be integrated by anti diffraction design. So the whole device, whole display will be transparent. And this system on lens will have one millimeter thing so that can fuse into your lens on your glass. And there's one more thing. We inherently will support. Light Field technology Let's not only project two static, two planar images in your eyes, we reproduce the light from the real object, so you will have no eye strain with a long time wear.
6: Now solving this in a a fundamentally different way is crucial. Everyone else on the market today uses a micro projector or a micro display in the housing of the uh, headset and reflects through complicated and bulky waveguides. Now, it's not just the current market industry leaders that are do- using this technology. Also, startups like Magic Leap, who recently closed a evaluation, funding at a valuation of over $8 billion, they use the same inefficient, ineffective technology in their displays. This drives the size of these bulky displays and making them unwieldy. Now, our unique solution of emitting light directly from a transparent display allows for brighter images and a much more compact design. This will actually be able to fit in the lens of everyday glasses. Now, when you stack us up against the competition, our field of view crushes the competition, allowing for a truly immersive field of view. Our high-density circuitry allows for 4K resolution from the get-go. And all this is at an affordable and competitive price at under $1,000. Now, these are important because comfort, immersion, and affordability are going to drive user adoption. Now, we've been talking about some really exciting technology, but there's an even more exciting market opportunity behind this. DigiCapital has this growing at 144% year-over-year. This makes an $18 billion market by 2021. But we're not stopping there. This has the ability to disrupt anything that interacts with the human vision. Displays, uh, smartphones, cinema. This is a $1 trillion consumer electronics market today. (coughs) Augmented reality fits inside that, but as the capabilities grow, it will displace and disrupt the need for these displays. Now, we've identified the display here because We'll be the only company that builds their own displays and uses them in their glasses. We'll control the price of the display and therefore be able to control the price of the glasses. Now, we derive our money from selling the hardware. And by integrating the the optics and the display into a single chip, we're able to reduce the number of components and get a cost of goods of $240. And as the market demands higher and higher resolution, we'll be able to meet that with our technology, sparking future revenue. Now our market strategy is to attack the entertainment industry. Goldman Sachs has this being 54% of the AR market. We will be selling to developers who will be seeding the content. They'll be making these experiences that are going to be changing the world. We've already seen examples of this with Pokemon Go, Snapchat filters, and Disneyland Parks and Experiences. As they create this awesome entertainment, and we will then be selling to the consumers. The consumers will buy our hardware, load their software, and they'll be able to experience these apps Uh, from the comfort of anywhere they want. Now, the market landscape is really awesome. There are a lot of players, meaning there's a lot of opportunity. Part of our market validation, we went out there and talked to these companies that just arrived on the screen. Big names like Google and NVIDIA are pushing the limits of augmented reality every single day. And for us, this is happening now. We have validated the technology, we've validated the market, identifying the five key pain points, we've filed a provisional patent, and we've already established manufacturing partners. Now this is going to be a capital-intensive business, but the first $1.1 million is going to be used to complete the display prototype. From there, we'll be, the next $1.9 million will be used for the Glasses MVP, allowing us to sell a developer version. From there, the funds will be used to scale production, and this is great timing because it's right around the 5G rollout, which will be a uh, fundamental technology enabling augmented reality. From there, we'll be able to release a consumer version, and this is also great timing because the, the Gardner hype cycle for AR has it maturing at the same time our products going to reach the market, allowing for a convergence of both the market and our product. Now we're well positioned. We filed a patent covering the fabrication process, the micro optics, uh, the glasses design, as well as the, a lot of the infrastructure surrounding this. By developing here at UCSB and leveraging the gallium nitride expertise, we're also achi- able to achieve rapid prototyping from the uh, UCSB NanoFab here. And we've already established manufacturing partners in China, allowing for scalable manufacturing as we continue forward. These form a triangle of competitive insulation. And behind this is an amazing team. We have three PhDs with combined 15 years of semiconductor experience. We have two technology management students running the business side of it. We have an amazing advisor with 10 years of semiconductor experience and a track record of growing a business out of the UCSB NanoFab. Together, we are FantaField. Welcome to the future.
3: Great job, Vanfield. Who'd like to lead, judges?
9: Great presentation. Um, with uh, kind of, I have kind of two questions. Is um, are you selling initially the displays to multiple markets? Is the go-to-market, or are you actually developing the full glasses?
16: We are developing full glasses.
9: So. Kind of with the with on your projections of what you're selling the glasses off and in terms of your margin structure, you're looking still at basic consumer electronics margins with a lot of heavy investment in. How are you thinking about further monetization, software, recurring revenue, and getting beyond hardware?
16: So these two things, money and time. So we take that account into account in the. Uh, Financial projection for the scaling up. So, and the time we run the Gantt chart to scale everything, we do everything parallel, every development as possible. So we adjust, uh, we have estimated the time and the and the capital required for this task.
4: Um, are you familiar with technology readiness levels? kind of curious how robust the technology is and, and by the technology i don't mean just the lenses i mean all of the support of uh, microprocessing and capabilities and so forth because right according to your financials you, you only need 2 million dollars before you make 92 million in revenue so and i don't see any of the microelectronics in your glasses either
16: that's a great question so the first thing is why we only takes so little money because we are based on UCSB. We have a NanoFab as a, a rapid prototyping platform. The NanoFab Excel actually costs $30 million and $5 million per year for maintenance. So we, as a startup, take advantage of this resource. We can do very high-speed prototyping. And I have been using this facility for five years. So we can do very quick prototyping faster than any big company. We don't have to set up our, our foundry. And uh, for the, another question is, what's the big picture of a whole system? So in our pattern, we describe the infrastructure in the future. The contents will be generated in the cloud. And in the future, actually, every 5G signal tower will have a server with a lot of GPUs. Those contents will be delivered very close to glass and uh, using high bandwidth of 5G technology, then the glass itself is only a display device. So we only need the display and uh, uh, wireless communication. And the display itself actually need to take only 1 milliwatt. And the wireless communication only need within 100, watt, 100 milliwatt. So we don't, do, we don't do processing here. So we can make the glass very light. and. Uh, at the end of the day, users user can wear the glass everywhere so as long as they have the 5G signal. And uh, we also, in the pattern, we include the wireless power transmission through the wire, wire, uh, 5G tower to the glass. Also, the uh, solar cell on on top of the glass. And we did a calculation. Based on the solar cell technology we have in the market, we can actually have powerless, uh, battery-less glass that totally pro- Powered by the solar cell on on the glass, and the wireless wireless charging is also getting better. So you can imagine, in the future, the glass it will be just a glass.
10: Hi guys, great uh, presentation. You know, my question is: Are your glasses big enough to have you know the the proper experience? Um, and is anyone else you know? We have some big competitors. Uh, is anyone else making a version that's similar to what you're doing? Right now,
16: yes, yes, that's quite a lot. So this is all the competitors using all kinds of wave guides and micro displays, and none of these will you will like to wear this on the street.
10: So the idea is, it's kind of a it's just a a pared down experience because I mean. Clearly, I mean, they block in your eyes for a reason. So is it just, it's more something that you can use on a more regular basis than the other alternatives? Is that the idea? Yes. Okay, thanks.
6: And that it will be a transparent display, so the display itself you'll actually be able to see through. And that, um, so when you compare our field of view versus the competition, we're actually much wider because we're able to use a transparent display. Everyone else uses the micro display and then going through waveguides and the waveguides limits the technology is the field of view. So our over 100 degree field of view is going to be wider than anything available in the market today.:
1: Yeah, I, I
4: wanted to ask you about access to um, access to media. So one of the strategies that these other companies are using is to create create media to actually look at. So where, where is your media going to come from?
16: So are you asking about the potential partners?
4: I'm asking, where are you going to get the digital content that you're looking at?
16: That's our first uh, marketing strategy here. It's like first iPhone. We first sell to the developers in this field. Actually, they are very eager to find the first platform for the future application. So we will actually can do an auction for those first first. first batch of the developers, and then they will develop contents. And then we will have phase two. We sell to customers, and they will be content ready. We have
3: time for one more, if there is one.
9: So imagine it's 2020, your launch, CES, big press, right? And then one year later, Samsung, LG, everyone else is gonna have similar glasses, right? How are you looking at competitive advantages beyond patents?
16: So we have three advantages here. One is we have patent pending and we will file it this year. Our patent is widely covered from make the device to the how to design the device, how to l- layout of the microlens, and the how the glass will communicate with servers, and the how the servers will generate not only power, and also signals, contents. So this coverage is very competitive. And uh, we have really good galonitri experts in UCSB. I think that's the top one university doing galonitri here. So if you're asking who can make better, best gallium nitride displays? It will be UCsb. So we have close to the experts here, and then this manufacturer is very unique. So this is a gallium nitride wafer. Ninety nine percent of the foundry in the world doesn't do gallium nitride; they do silicon. So they rule out ninety nine percent. Another one percent of foundry doing gallium nitride is making light bulb. So those light bulb is using very low resolution <coughs> and a very simple design. So those light bulb manufacturer doesn't have the capability to make display. And they are actually t- competing with a very low margin market. So I step into one of the, mar- of the foundry, tell them, I tell you how to make display. You're helping to make a display. And actually, they are, this wafer, they send me for free. And then it will send me more. So, this manufacturing is unique. We are ahead of time. If you send someone to step in, they need to for at least spend five years from setting up the foundry to research on the um, design and the recipe. So, it's, it's like 10 years from now. So, we are very, you know, very we're, good. We're out of town time, so wrap that up if you could. Yeah, we are in a very good position. Thank you. Great work, Vanderfield. Thank you.
17: Hello, everyone. We're cryptics, and we're putting an end to ticket fraud and scalping. A couple years ago, I wanted to attend Outside Lands, a music festival in San Francisco. So I went online, and I bought a ticket from a resale site for $500. But when I showed up to the venue, I found out that the person who sold me the ticket had made 10 copies of that same ticket and sold it to 10 different people. So every day, for the next three days of the festival, it was a race to be the first in line, since only the first ticket would show up as valid and the other nine would be invalid. So needless to say, this was a terrible experience for me as a consumer. And this same problem that I had is also happening to millions of people each year. Last year alone, There were over 5 million fraudulent tickets purchased. And in an average secondary market, like Craigslist or StubHub, 90% of resellers are actually professional scalpers looking to make a profit, not fans. And these middlemen are siphoning about $2 billion in value away from the real value creators, the artists, the venues, the ticketing agencies, and the fans. Now this problem exists... Because the majority of tickets today are still issued as PDFs with QR codes, an old technology that provides pretty much no control over the ticket after it's issued. These tickets are extremely vulnerable to fraud, they provide inaccurate data on ticket ownership, and secondary transaction revenue is being lost. The lack of a better ticketing solution has fragmented the market for tickets into secure primary sales, but insecure secondary sales, spread out over dozens of resale sites, and is ultimately costing this industry billions of dollars in lost value. So what this industry needs is a new form of ticketing altogether, one that is able to integrate and protect the value that is being lost. And we're building this ticket using blockchain technology. A blockchain is a system of transferring unique digital property over the internet where both parties can be sure of exactly who owns what. Now this is really important, because if I'm going to send you hundred dollars through my mobile phone, you want to be sure that I don't retain a copy of that same hundred dollars. And of course, the same applies to tickets. When you buy a ticket, you want to be certain that you are now the sole owner of that ticket. The world's largest banks are already trusting blockchain to issue their digital assets. We're packaging this technology and bringing it to live music. Cryptix transforms tickets into encrypted digital tokens that are tracked by a blockchain ledger. This allows tickets to be transferred as easily as a text message, while keeping the validation data secure. Our tickets can't be forged, duplicated, or sold outside of our network, but users can still buy tickets from anyone in the world without knowing or trusting them, thanks to our automated escrow service. The result is a fully integrated marketplace for tickets where for the first time an agency can control both the primary and secondary sales, bringing back all the revenue, all the data, and all the transactions that are currently being lost. Fans now have confidence in their tickets, and agencies have control over their tickets. So let's take a step back and see how my outside lands experience would have been different with a Cryptix ticket. Before I sent any money to the reseller, I would have had a guarantee that my ticket was authentic. And even after the transaction, I could go online and check a digital ledger to see that I was now the sole owner. I wouldn't even have to know who I was buying this ticket from. All I would know is that I was getting a real ticket at a fair price, and I could now go and enjoy the show. So rather than compete with the major ticketing companies out there, we offer our software as a service to them through an API, so they can generate blockchain tickets directly from their existing platform with no expensive hardware upgrades. We charge these agencies a $1 fee per ticket scanned, as well as a percentage of any transaction fees levied in a secondary market. There are over 1 billion live event tickets sold each year that could benefit from the Cryptix platform. But initially, we are just targeting North American concert ticket sales where we estimate 100 million are sold each year. Because of the consolidation of these major ticketing companies into just a few key players, just by signing one or two, we could see extraordinary revenue growth very early on. In our first year of operation, we will still be recouping the costs of our initial product development, but by year three, after powering major clients and gaining sizable market share, we expect to be making close to $60 million in revenue, with about 56 million of that coming in as pure profit, thanks to the low cost of operation and inherent scalability of a blockchain network. Our competitive installation comes from our speed to market and our proprietary software. Currently, there is one blockchain ticketing startup in Europe, but they're trying to form a standalone agency to compete with these big companies. Cryptix will be the first to market with a blockchain as a service API. And we can patent the smart contract layers that we're building on top of it, like the escrow service service I mentioned earlier. And we've assembled an all-star team with the skills needed to make Cryptix a reality. My name's Nick Martich. I've worked in two years in B2B software marketing while also a student here at Santa Barbara for a Palo Alto-based company called Service Rocket. My co-founder, Braden Curry, has experience in management consulting with ZS Associates as well as being the VP of community for San Francisco-based startup LiveDay. Our lead developer, Stanislav Sinko, has nine years of IT experience, led 50-plus projects, and is an expert at lead lean blockchain development. We also have a strong advisory team, consisting of Mark Davis, who started a software company called Versto. They eventually sold to VMware for $220 million. Frank Robinson, who's helped bring hundreds of products to market and coined the phrase minimum viable product. And Stefo Mitakidis, who has decades of music management experience touring alongside bands such as Pearl Jam. Now, our team is moving very quickly to bring this product to market. We've already designed the initial architecture for the enterprise platform and full-scale development kicks off next week. While we're building our product this summer, we'll also be meeting with ticketing agencies to build our sales pipeline. We're currently in contact with the executives of Access Ticketing, the ticketing arm of the largest live events company in the world. And we have a meeting on the books with them for late June. By August, we plan to host a proof of technology show on our beta platform, and we already have confirmation from independent artists who are excited to participate. From there, we will raise around $900,000 to work on our enterprise API, expand our business, and power our first major client by winter of 2018. And in three years, we will be the industry standard for secure mobile ticketing. If we look to the future, it's estimated that 32 billion mobile tickets will be issued worldwide in just 2019. These tickets will face new challenges regarding digital identity and complex value transfer which current technology is not up to the task of addressing. After a successful deployment in live music, Cryptix will use its core platform to be the most secure, the most convenient, and the most sophisticated ticketing method in the world for anything from sports to entertainment to transportation. So to sum it up, for the past 20 years, companies have made some improvements in the way that tickets are sold, but Cryptix is changing the ticket itself. Thank you.
3: Great job, cryptics. I'll take it. Make sure you um, press the button when you're answering. Who'd like to start?
10: I can. Great job, guys.
18: Thank you.
10: Thank you. Well, I'm uh, curious to know why hasn't Ticketmaster or Subhub built this, or one of the big guys, or you know, did you dig into that, or have they tried? Or?
17: Yes. So, so the trend. Um, So so the trend with with these big ticketing agencies is most of their time and and effort and money is put into operations because they're the ones who are on the ground, they're working with promoters, they have to be aggressive in signing artists, organizing with venues to set up these shows. So the trend is that rather than than spend the money on R&D themselves, they are very active in early stage funding and early stage acquisition of uh, existing software systems that can benefit and and complement their products. Um, blockchain technology is also still relatively new. Um, we're, we're building this product on Ethereum Enterprise, which has only been in production for, for less than a year. Um, so it makes much more sense for them to come to us to, uh, to build this product than to build it in-house.
14: Thanks.
5: So if I am StubHub or Ticketmaster, um, talk about the, the API and the difficulty of... Um, you know they have tens of millions in invested in these systems. So, how easily um, can somebody switch uh, from their current system to uh, to using your system? Is it a, uh, and how would it compare to something like Stripe, for example? Um, in that, if you took it to a larger audience of independent promoters and independent artists, does it take a lot of technical sophistication? And, and what kind of app does the API fold into because although it's blockchain as a service, you still have to have something that is going to administer the actual e-commerce of the, of the sales, for example. Um, and then I have a follow-up question on that, too. Okay.
17: Um, so we would, we would integrate it with their, their back-end system. So currently they, they would generate a ticket um, using a, a standard PDF and QR code generator. We would replace that with a blockchain token Um, that can be distributed through their their current system and it can actually connect to a current payment processor like Stripe. Um, We have a a more sophisticated payment network in development um, that would actually use encrypted tokens to to transfer value. Um, But just for the initial stages of, you know, cancelling fraud, which is something they're they're very interested in doing, we can still connect to those uh, existing payment networks. And then the, the ticket, rather than being sent through an email... It would be sent through, let's say, Ticketmaster's mobile app. Um, it could be accessed on a mobile web browser. Um, so it's, it's a more uh, secure way to issue that ticket than just a, a PDF in an email. But it can still be sent from their existing platforms that, that they have invested a lot of money into. And ideally, if we're doing
11: our job right, the promoters and the fans won't even know that we're there.
17: Yeah, it would just be white-labeled and they would think, oh, this company just has much
5: better service now. So, if you're white labeling like that, is there the opportunity to get on somebody else's platform? Shopify comes to mind as uh, being a plug-in on something that is not specifically designed for tickets. Or does it really need to be one of these ticket vendors that that you partner with?
17: Uh, I mean, with with, with the integration, um, I mean it's pretty agnostic to what payment process. I'm not super familiar with, with Shopify's uh, functionality, mm-hmm. um, but I mean, anytime you're 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 issuing a token. We we can take over that, that back end process.
5: Thanks.
4: Do you really think gross margins of like ninety some odd percent are realistic? That there's not going to be competition, or um, or that people are going to actually pay you that kind of money to use this?
11: So we actually met with some ticketing agencies early on, and. Um, we started it, they said a dollar commission would be a great place to start. That might go down, it might go up. But that's um,
7: what we learned from those kind of meetings. And, mm-hmm.
17: and um, our, our, our developer has uh, given us those numbers for product development. Um, he's, he's certain that he can build this for you know, a, l- a little bit under cost of, of, of what we're showing. Um, and then from there, it'll just be how much we want to invest in product improvements and do you know, further integrations. Uh, but there, there are incredibly high margins on networks like this that are, that are so scalable.
5: So if I understand the, the patents, they're, they're more about, uh, around the escrow service than they are around blockchain itself, obviously, um, but tell me more about what else can be patented or, or maybe in more detail what your provisionals sure. Are,
17: sure. are written around. So the, the initial development will be on a protocol for the way that tickets are being issued. And then after you have a protocol, you can start building things called smart contracts, which are you know, ways to incorporate business logic into self-executing pieces of code to produce a new outcome. Um, and those, that, like, like we said with the escrow service, we also have other uh, projects under development like price ceilings, um, so for the first time you know, someone like Adele has said she won't tolerate the sale of her ticket for above face value because of this we can now institute a price ceiling with a smart contract um, so yeah processes like that can, can now be patented
3: I've got time for one more
9: who's um, paying for the $1 per ticket fee and I guess that's my first part of it
11: Who's paying for it? Yeah, who's paying the one dollar? Really, the scalpers. Where all the value is currently being lost to? Well, the ticketing agencies
17: pay
7: pay the, oh, the fee. The, yeah, yeah, it's so coming t- directly from the ticketing agencies. But
9: so the ticket, do you, you guys have validation that the ticket agency will let you into their cost of goods sold? Yeah,
17: I mean, we're yeah, like you said, like we we initially met with with employees who are um, you know now in, in, in senior positions and sales strategies. And the reason that they would let us, they would, you know, pay one dollar, which sounds really hefty, is uh, because of the the long-term strategy that this is providing, which is you have these ticketing agencies who for long periods of time haven't had substantive competitive advantage over each other. The only way they could compete with one another is through maybe a user interface improvement, a lower fee, and then they're all still losing value to these secondary markets what we can do is restructure that market to bring all the value from every resale site back to that primary ticketing agency. So they now have control over that market. They have data on who the ticket is going to. They can identify the scalpers and bar them from buying tickets. And they can institute any sort of transaction fee to, to gain the revenue that's currently going to the scalpers. So taking the value away from them and bringing it back to the, the rightful value creators.
3: We're out of time. Great job, Cryptics.
11: would like to recognize Dave Adornetto for the great work that he's done. Dave, come on up.
4: I've got a,
11: I've got a plaque for Dave, the Lodestar Award, recognizing Dave Adornetto for guiding the technology management programs entrepreneurial efforts for 2017. Dave's done a fantastic job with the program. We're lucky to have him, and uh, I think you can tell from the quality of the presentations tonight, Dave had a lot to do with that. Of course, the students did too. But, um, Dave, thank you very much for all your re- efforts yeah.
3: Thank you, but tonight's not about me. OK, I got a couple announcements myself. Um, can you hear me? Uh, The first one is, I'm really happy for all of you. I was going to say proud, but that doesn't sound right because of all the work you guys put in, and you did this. And I thought you all were outstanding, and I need to tell you, it was an extreme pleasure to work with all of you this year. And I'm not supposed to have favorites, but you're all my favorites. (laughs) The second thing is, and and Bob took my little statement that I wanted to say to him today, because Bob's role, we're not sure what it's going to be, but apparently it's changing a little bit because... Um, he's been asked so many times to extend his chairship of the department uh, but he is finally um, I think relinquishing some of that to Kyle Lewis which, um, so we're, we're headed to a, um, a, a new leader of our group and we're still defining I think trying to keep Bob involved um, in, in some capacity we're not sure what that's going to be but uh, for me personally Bob where'd you go? Oh there you are um, to have somebody to bounce ideas off of and your guidance, um, I'm most appreciative, and that will not stop no matter where you are, as long as you're alive and on campus. So, thank you for everything. Okay. <laughs> Bob, this is for you. Okay, the order that we're going to do these today, we're going to announce people's choice first, then we're going to do third place, second place first place, then we'll hand out the Honorable Mention, and we will close with the Ealing's Prize, which Virgil will come up and explain his criteria. Good? Yeah, why not?
17: What did I say we'd start with?
3: Ah, People's Choice. Okay, Uh, You all voted, and our People's Choice winner tonight, and last year I screwed up, so I'm just going to double check myself. Yes. um, Yes, do we have, is tall here? Tall, Where are you? Tall, Come on up? Because tall is going to thank you, Sarah. Tall's is going to present this award on behalf of CNSI, the CNI People's Choice CNSI. People's Choice Award goes to Collateral. To make sure okay third place in the 2017 new venture competition goes to Wanderlease. and this award is presented this award is presented by Steve Seberoff of SoCal IP Law um, who've been wonderful supporters of us this year. As I mentioned earlier, uh, SoCal IP law provides some in kind services to our teams, and they'll be handing out certificates to all of you to redeem at your leisure. Okay, second place? ROM, are you here? ROM? Oh, wonderful. I've not met ROM yet, so. Okay. Winner of second place in the 2017 New Venture Competition is Delta Leaf Labs. Josh? Josh, where are you? Josh, get on. Josh, um, I think Josh wanted to say a word or two. Congratulations. That's all. <laughs> Easy. Josh and I go the same barber. Okay. Um, a huge thank you goes out to Stradling, who's our presenting sponsor of this program. And uh, the judges have voted the grand prize of the 2017 New Venture Competition to cryptics. Can you guys come back up and claim your honorable mention prize? Yeah, baby. <laughs> the honorable mention prize. This prize is sponsored by Procore, so Steve Zom is going to present for us. Going in alphabetical order, Fantafil, will you guys come up and receive your honorable mention award? This one is sponsored by Tracker. Organic Matters. Will you guys come on up? This award is is uh, presented by Jason Rollman of Yardie. Ready for you.
18: To the next one. Just arrow down. Oh, I thank the students for their presentations. I got interested in projections and time scales. Uh, so let's do a flashback to 1992 just for kicks. This is the Inc. 500. This is the 500 fastest growing companies in the U.S., so they say. There were two Santa Barbara companies on this list. One was Deckers, the other was Digital Instruments. One thing I always found interesting is they would do a survey of these 500 people on on their starting up and how they were funded and what they thought about their success was going to be. Let me go with the uh, seed capital. This is 1992. It turns out that uh, charge cards beat venture capital. And almost entirely between the family and, and the people starting the businesses that was funded out of their own pockets, uh, different than the way people think today. This was their plans for growth when they first started out. And if you take Just Survive and Grow Slowly and stay small, it occupies something like two-thirds of all the companies. And so I was looking for growth plans here tonight that would sort of mimic these uh, Inc. 500 people, and I found none. I was looking for what I would call a realistic projection of, of what your growth is going to be, and I didn't see any. I don't know if these students know how hard it is to sell $50 million worth of stuff in 10 years. It's really hard. You have to be damn good at what you're doing. Let me go back to, oh, growth plan. Let me go back to C Capital. Digital Instruments was essentially the same way, except we uh, started with $50,000, and the average here was $25,000. Deckers, I don't know what they started with, but I have a feeling they started on a shoestring. Although, here's a plot. I don't know whether you can see it. This is a plot of Decker's stock price from their IPO. They went public the year after the Inc. 500. Went public at $8. 10 years, the stock was between $1 and $2. So you investors could have got in there. You had 10 years to think about it. Nobody likes to buy when it's low, though. (laughs) And then, as you can see, the future got a little ragged there toward the end, and it's uh, essentially $50 now. So projecting the future I don't know what Decker said when they went public about their projections, but I'll guarantee you it's not what happened. It wasn't 10 years of, oh, the stock will go down a factor of four or eight or something like that, and then we'll sit there little hard to project the future. So, anyway, my uh, my pick of, of course, the most realistic uh, projection is the lowest one. Sorry about that. And so, and so, uh, Delta Leaf Labs is <laughs> is the winner.
3: More photos outside. Thank you all for coming this evening and, uh, again, helping to recognize our 2017 New Venture Competition teams.
0: You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.